Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hello and welcome back to Chronicle, the history of Newcastle United. I'm Matt Ketchell, football editor at Chronicle Live. And our walk through the entire 140-year history of this fantastic football club has hit an extremely significant era. It's the late 1960s and Newcastle United are about to enter a new frontier in spectacular fashion. European football is here. Last week's episode covered the return of Joe Harvey, a promotion back to the top flight and a brush with European royalty when the club played European Cup holder Celtic over two legs that were friendlies, inverted commas. This episode, we'll cover the period from 1968 to 1971, and joining me as ever is the club's official historian, Paul Joannou, and it's our absolute honour to welcome Newcastle United's Fairs Cup winning captain, Bob Moncur. Bob, a warm welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Matt. Bob, I want to start by reminding our listeners about your uh, contribution to the club as a player during the this era, the 60s and 70s. So Bob was one of the finest captains to ever lead out Newcastle United, a superb central defender who marshalled the Magpies to a European final and an FA Cup final. A likeable man off the pitch, a rugged and determined player on it. Bob arrived in Newcastle as an attacking half-back or inside forward, but had to be patient for his break in the first team. That came in the 1965-66 season when he found his feet as a central defender, a position he would dominate and make his own over the next eight seasons. Few were better in this role during this era with Bob's ability to read the game setting him apart from the rest and prompting Sir Matt Busby of all people to say he is a splendid captain and a leader of men. Bob uh, we're doing this podcast to educate and remind supporters about the incredible history of Newcastle United and you're a big part of that. I wanted to start by asking you a big question and that is what does Newcastle United mean to you? Well, I think, Matt, the fact that I've been down, as you've said, I came down in 1960 as a young boy and had a problem getting in the first team initially after doing the apprenticeship thing. But uh, eventually I did get in and to be at Newcastle United all these years was just, uh, you know, obviously I went away and played. Dare I say I went to play at Sunderland as well, but I thought that was a proper move for my career. And I went on to manage Carlisle as well. But eventually the, the calling was at Newcastle United and now I'm back there working as a club ambassador and I think I have many, many. Now you've, you've prompted me by saying, you know, we're going to have a little chit-chat. I've been thinking of all the bits and pieces, rereading Paul's book just to bring me up to, kiss me memory goes. So uh, fantastic for me and I just, uh, I've been around the club through good, bad, indifferent and um, I'm just happy to be involved at the football club at the minute. Yeah, brilliant. Brilliant. Can't wait to get into this and, and, and chat about this period with you. Paul, if you could set the scene then. Uh, at the end of the last episode, we touched upon the slightly fortuitous circumstances that paved the way for Newcastle's first entry into European football. Uh, it was all very new and exciting, wasn't it? It certainly was. Uh, when qualification for the old Intercities Fairs Cup occurred, which is uh, now roughly equivalent to the Europa League, that occurred in the summer of 68 and, and excitement soon reached a high point. Competitive European football was something completely new to United's fans uh, and to the Northeast as a whole. European action at the time had caught on 
uh, with firstly Celtic uh, winning the European Cup uh, these days, the Champions League, of course. Um, that happened in 1967. Then Manchester United did likewise in 1968. And uh, you know, Europe arrived in the Northeast. Uh, it was for me as a 14 year old going on 15 year old. You know, just something uh, completely caught my imagination. And, and of course, all the games were under the floodlights. And that, that made it even uh, uh, more atmospheric with a full house at St. James's Park. And uh, at the time, I just couldn't wait for it to start. Yeah. And, and Bob, European football was also new to most of United's players too, wasn't it? Not many had played European club football, although some did have international football experience. I wondered what the expectation was like when Newcastle made their first cup bow at, at home to Feyenoord, who were a top European side in September 1968. Well, I think it's important, Matt, before that, to see, you know, as, as Paul said, we got in through the back door. At least we were told we got in through the back door. And quite frankly, we I think we finished 10th in the league. But of course, the two the two city rule, uh, the one, one team, one city rule, we came into. And I, and I actually knew about, we had a chance of getting into Europe. Uh, however, I've got to tell you, I was out. Uh, I was out on holiday, and I got a phone from phone call from John Gibson, saying that um, I think he was actually there at the draw. He says, "We're in Europe." I said, "Yeah, I know. I'm in my bear." <laughs> I, I didn't realise, and even then, I didn't realise how important that was to me. I have to say, when I was away on holiday, I wasn't thinking about are we going to be playing in Europe or are we not. It wasn't high on my priority list, but uh, it was just a. Uh, fantastic. And I think that's how it started. We, we started off thinking, well, we're in this cup. And uh, I think everybody's attitude was, we just took it as, we, as it came. Certainly as players, I think the fans took it more, um, dare I say, seriously and more exciting than we did because we just thought we got in through the back door a little bit. Albeit, I have to say, we did walk out the front door with the cup, but that's another point. <laughs> uh, and I, I do think at the time uh, it was just, a, oh, it's great. You know, what does that mean to us? It was only when we came, I came back to Newcastle and realised the fervour, if you like, of the fans and people talking about being in Europe. And that, you know, I was, I think I was 22 at the time, maybe, and I had no, I, I had no idea actually what it meant until obviously when we started playing. Uh, then it all became apparent. Yes, and trust Gibbo to break the news to you, of course, John Gibson, legendary chronicle writer, who we're going to have on this show in the next episode, actually. So yeah, brilliant. And Paul, if you could lend. Talk us through that first round tie against Feyenoord and the rest of what would turn out to be a glorious run all the way to the final. Yeah, well, against the Dutch, uh, who were a very good side, had some excellent players. Um, United actually got off to a wonderful start at St James's Park. Uh, they shocked everyone, um, you know, and, and you know, everyone in Europe as well, uh, with a 4 0 victory. And it was a, a wet, wet Gallagher surface with a a big crowd around about 46,000, I think. And it was local winger, a youngster called Jeff Allen, uh, who broke into the side. He had a field day on that night. I uh, absolutely remember him skipping down the, the wing on the popular side in the first half and tearing the, the Dutch defenders apart. And, and United eventually won 4-0. They could have got more goals, to be honest. And that was the start of a, of a run to the final, which was just brilliant. And the crowds grew after that and it was more or less a full house in every game. Uh, the second round, we played Sporting Lisbon, another very good top European side. Uh, and that uh, saw a wonderful Pop Robson volley from a free kick at St James's Park. And there was 53,000 at that game. And then we played Real Zaragoza. 
these days not a great Spanish club, but back in 1968-69, they were a, a decent Spanish team. And that saw another Robson gem at St James's Park, uh, this time a 30-yarder. Um, and the crowds were the crowd was fifty six thousand at St James's Park then. So the the the, the supporters had you know, gradually game after game uh, just uh, caught the imagination of what was happening uh, on Tyneside. And in the quarterfinal, we played a virtual unknown Vitoria Setubal of Portugal. And Newcastle were a bit lucky, I suppose, because it uh, it snowed that night at St James's Park and nearly. All of the Spanish, all of the Portuguese, I should say, had hardly seen snow before, and fifty-seven thousand saw Newcastle win five-one, and they needed that five, those five goals because in the second leg in Portugal, they, they gave Bob and Co a bit of a roasting. So you know, it was a, an exciting run up to the quarter-final. Yeah, and there was an interesting semi-final tie. But before we talk about that, Bob, any memories of, of, of that little run up, up to the semi-final? Loads of memories, Matt. Just let me go back to the very beginning. It's worth mentioning that when we played Feyenoord, I wasn't playing because uh, we played in the pre-season friendly up at Hibs. And uh, the things I remember about playing there, and it was a red-hot afternoon in the summer, and I played. I was playing back in Edinburgh, of course, and that's where you know my mother, my mum and dad just lived outside Edinburgh. And my mother, for the first time, came to a match, and I got carried off with a cartilage problem. And I didn't obviously play for uh, against Feyenoord. And unlike today, I was I think I was skipper of the club by that time. But unlike today, um, I I wasn't due to go uh, to Feyenoord. I was left out of the whole squad. And uh, eventually I got there, but I went with the supporters on their plane, which I paid for to go over there with the supporters to watch my team play against Feyenoord over there. It's amazing what you think back. And to be fair to Joe Harvey, who was like a god to me, uh, his strategy, which I can talk about a little bit later, it was somewhat surprising because when uh, somebody said to him, why, why is the skipper not going? He said, well, he's no good, he can't play, so he's not going. And that was as simple as that. And I didn't ask any questions. And I washed the first leg from the paddock, which used to be the paddock. I was actually in the paddock. I don't know why I was in the paddock. I wasn't in the stand. Uh, and I watched it. I might be with my dad. I was in the paddock watching the game. And then the leg away, as, as I say, uh, I, I went with the supporters. They invited me, I'm trying to think of the guy's name, Peter, who was the commercial director, whatever you want to call him. I, I went with the supporters there and back. And uh, I just I look back now and thinking uh, that wouldn't have probably happened nowadays. But that's the way the game was. And uh, Joe was absolutely fantastic mentor for me and uh, as we, as he was for the rest of the players and I think uh, he's worth a big big mention in the first cup run yes absolutely we'll we'll definitely talk about Joe and that's amazing to hear that didn't know didn't know that Bob that's why you're you're here to give us that fantastic <laughs> well, insight so uh, the semi-final uh, Newcastle reached against the odds and met Glasgow Rangers at home and away, obviously, it was two legs in May 1969. Now, even though this was uh, many years ago, I'm very aware of this infamous game. Um, but, Paul, if you want to first remind us how the two legs played out, please. Well, it was a big uh, a big, a big, big tie, of course. Uh, Rangers, as they are now, a huge club in Scotland and, and in Europe at the time. And, and of course, uh, there was a big crowd at Ibrox, 75,000, uh, which was... Uh, Apart from cup finals, at that point, uh, the biggest crowd that Newcastle had played in in front of. And it was a nil-nil draw. And, and the hero that night was Willie McFall, the goalkeeper, who saved an Andy Penman penalty. And that, that was crucial. Uh, it kept the, 
the the, the tie very much alive for the for the return leg. And uh, fifty nine thousand were on time side uh, as United raced to a two nil advantage. Uh, and then only you know to witness a Scottish invasion uh, on of the pitch. Uh, there were there were thousands of Rangers fans on Tyneside and in Gallagher that night. And the players had to be taken off for over 15 minutes. They invaded the pitch from the Gallagher end. Um, I was in the centre paddock and was just praying that the Glaswegians, uh, who had fought far too much to drink, would not, wouldn't come anywhere near me, that's for certain. And, and to be honest, a full-scale sort of fight and riot was averted only because the Newcastle fans more or less stayed in their end of the ground at the Leasers' end and didn't join in uh, on the pitch. But eventually it was all uh, put back into control and Newcastle ran out 2-0 winners. Mm. Bob, dying to hear what your memories of, of that, that night was. Well, I've got many memories of that. Bearing in mind I'm a Scotsman and I know what the Scotsman are like. But in all, in all fairness to, um, to the Rangers and the, the Rangers supporters, it was made out maybe to be worse than what it actually was. Because as I, 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 as I can remember, uh, what caused it was... At the Gallagher end, that's where all the new, that's where all the Rangers supporters were housed. That was that was their bit. And what happened was, I think, somebody when we were two 0 up, the Rangers supporters started to throw bottles from the back of the Gallagher. And what was happening? It was actually hitting their own supporters who were down near the front, and they took cover. And what did they do? They obviously spilled on the pitch. And I think that's what really started it. It spilled on the pitch. And then once they got on the pitch, of course. They then they started to run, and it, it, Paul says uh, the Newcastle United fans were, you know, more singing something like "We are staying here, we are staying here," which I think averted a fairly major um, incident, if you like, because I think if the Newcastle supporters had came on from the Leeds end, it would have been World War Three. So, in, in, you know, in theory, um, it was the Rangers supporters' fault, but I think that was the reason why some of the players came on the pitch. It just some of the players, the spectators, because they would get hit by their own players, by their own supporters throwing bottles onto the, the Gallagher end. But the one thing I remember about it when I realised what was happening, I remember um, playing on the left-hand side and we're kicking towards the, um, the Lee's end and I was playing away. And I'm sure I saw something flash over the left side of me into the, the paddock, the left-hand side paddock. And I thought, oh, no, I wonder what that was. And then you're playing on because the game's still live. And the next thing I know, Willie McFall runs past me on the right-hand side taps me on the shoulder and says, run. And, asked, and by the time he had said run, he was away in front of me. So I went, what? Turned around and I saw this invasion coming. So would you believe I actually beat him down the tunnel? And I think um, that was, it was okay, as, as Paul says, 15, 20 minutes, whatever it was, we had to go off, but the game had to be finished, of course, that's that's the law. And I remember, um, and it was all a bit bad for Bad for Rangers, you know. I liked Rangers. It was it was bad publicity for them. But in fairness to um, the directors of Rangers Football Club, I think when we went off, I think it was decided um, by by the Rangers officials, the chairman. Uh, I think his name now, Paul. Uh, he went to the referee and said, you know, we would like to more or less we will concede this game. Even though there was 20 minutes to play, he actually said we need to concede this game because of what's happened. But unfortunately, we had to go, because of the rules, we had to go back on and finish the game. And we went back on, finished the game, no incident at all, it was, it was fine. Uh, I think most of the Rangers supporters had left by then. And then um, I was invited into the, um, normally after the game in the Fairs Cup, you would go, all the players would get a present from the, the opposition team. 
and that was normally done at a little sort of function after the match. But on this occasion, I was um, I was asked to go up to the um, the chairman's the boardroom at Newcastle United, which was upstairs in them days. I had to go up to the boardroom, and I've got to tell you that was the first time I'd ever been in the boardroom. Apart <laughs> when I was an apprentice, I'd never actually been there officially. And uh, the, the chairman of the Rangers Football Club said to me, uh, we'd just like to make this little presentation for you now rather than do it uh, publicly. And uh, apologised very, 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 very. He was very, very sad about what happened to Rangers that night. And I remember I think at the time he didn't look too well. I'm trying, desperately trying to think of his name. Paul, can you remember his name, the chairman of Rangers Football Club? I, I can't, no, no, sorry. Anyway, he, he, and he was, and he, the reason he didn't come down to do it officially in the dressing room or whatever in, the, in function, because he wasn't up to it. And I remember thinking, that's hit Rangers very, very hard. And I, I thought because of the incident, yes, it, it looked terrible. It looked terrible, but in fairness, as I say, it was instigated by their own supporters throwing bottles at their own because they couldn't throw them far enough and they'll get hit in the back of the head. Now, now I know if I was standing at the, the the Gallagher and just behind the nets, I would have got on the pitch as well because I didn't want to get hit with bottles. So it was yeah. a bit, um, it was made, a big thing was made of it, but how it started wasn't as bad as you might think it was. And just to add that these were real bottles, glass bottles, not plastic. Oh, yeah. You get today. They were, they were good old fashioned Newcastle brown ale bottles. Well, I've got to say, Paul, the next day in the Chronicle, there was a picture of the Gallagher end. It's a fantastic picture. It yeah. just shows you the goalposts. And then the Gallagher end, and you couldn't see for bottles and cans. Unbelievable. They're all just lying on the terrace. You must have that picture somewhere, yeah. Paul. Brilliant. Yeah. All it was was just, what about this then? And the hundreds and hundreds of cans and bottles. I can still see that in my mind. We'll dig that image out. And uh, was it John Lawrence, the name of the chairman at Rangers? Could well have been. Well done. Well done, man. Mm-hmm. Did you well do done. a quick research there? Did you? Well, well done, Google. Well done, Google. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing night then for, for many different reasons and, and it took Newcastle to the first major European final, the first time of asking to face a Hungarian side. I'm going to leave the pronunciation of that side to you, Paul. It was uh, played over two legs, the first of St. James's Park on the 29th of May and the second leg in Hungary was a full 12 days later on Joe Harvey's 51st birthday, no less, Paul. Yes, that's right. Um, my Geordie pronunciation uh, is Uj Pesti Doze. Um, sometimes with an I, sometimes without an I. Uh, Bob, you might know the, the, the proper pronunciation. But at the time, they were one of Europe's uh, best sides uh, with several well-known players, uh, including a very famous forward called Ferrick Benny. At St. James's Park, the first leg, uh, it was a full house, 59,000, although 60,000 tickets were sold. I don't know where the other thousand went. Um, but they saw United 3-0 up on, a, on an early summer evening in June. Uh, sorry, at the end of May, a certain Bob Moncur hit the net twice uh, on that uh, day. And in the second leg, of course, he scored again as United came back from 2-0 down to win handsomely uh, 3-2 in, in Budapest. Yeah, amazing, amazing. Bob, you couldn't have even dreamt about what was to happen to you personally in that final. You were never a goal scorer, although you did grab one in the FA Youth Cup final in 1962. But a, a hat-trick across two legs in a European final. You mentioned uh, Joe Harvey. He ignored you when you were injured. What was his reaction like at the full-time whistle of that one? Well, I think everybody was celebrating. I can't remember all the details, but it was obviously... Uh, it was a big surprise, I think, because uh, I called uh, the team Uyapest Dosha, 
that's what that's my Scottish pronunciation, right or wrong. I've got to admit, I've got to also just tell you somebody else who used to call him Big Jack Charlton, sadly no longer with us. He used to call him Upsy Daisy. That was his, <laughs> his big Upsy Daisy. Anyway, they were a great side because they had um, they had beat Leeds, I think, and they were supposed right. to be one of the best sides in in Europe. I think it was either Don Revy or Jockstein had said these are one of the best teams in Europe. So we were up against a, a good side. And to be fair, um, I think it was was it nil nil at half time, Paul. I think it was yes, yes. And yeah, they went pretty. They went pretty close in that first yeah. half. And it was, a, it was, there was like sixty thousand people there, and it was, it was give and take. It was touch and go, and they had some. I think they had about six or seven Hungarian internationals who were top top players at the time, and then um, so it was difficult for us. But we we defended well, and we worked hard, and of course we always had the winning pop, and with two wingers and Jackie Shinkler and Scotty who could cross the ball, and two great midfield players in Tommy Gibb and Benny Antoft and. And myself at the back, along with Clarkie and Craigie, and I think it was John. It was Ollie Button who was playing centre half that time. So we had a pretty good regular team, great team spirit. I have to say, it probably wasn't the greatest talented team in the world, but the thing about it was we had a great team spirit. And uh, you know, we just battled away, thinking because we weren't fair, they were favourites, and we just battled away and battled away. And I think we got a, a free a free kicker was lobbed in by Tommy Gibb. Uh, Wynn Davis, who was magnificent, he had, you know, you're too young to remember him, but he used to hang forever. And he pulled this ball in, hit the keeper, and came out, and fortunately landed at my feet. And I just, and I, I wasn't normally in the, but Joe Harvey wouldn't allow me to go over the halfway line unless it was set pieces, because I was supposed to be the one that organised the back. So that was my role. Don't you go over the halfway line. And whoever did, he used to start. I'm not telling you what he said, ever did, but he was there with his cigarette back. So uh, in this occasion, because it was a dead ball situation, I think it was a corner, I can't remember, and I was up there, and uh, head up, boom, came my left foot, pinged it in. Did I aim for it? Not really. I just hit it as hard as I could. Fortunately, it went to the back of the net. And lo and behold, you know, 10, 15 minutes later, I remember uh, taking a ball on my chest, an hour half, on my chest, not very well controlled because it went, bounced about four or five yards, but I kept after it. And then I started running, looking what was I going to do with this ball because I'm not used to being in their half. And then, and then I saw it, it was Jimmy Scott, and I just I said I'll give it to him. And for some, and I passed it to him, well, 10, 15 yard pass ball was it? Kind of, and I thought I'll just keep running. And the next thing I knew, it was back at my feet. And then by that time, I was just on the edge of the box or inside the box. And I thought, well, again, I'll just hit it. And that's all I did. That was it. That's so that was that was the history of the, the two goals. And I remember coming back Frank to Frank Clark. He was the first to congratulate me. And he, he said, You lucky so and so, so and so. He says, I've hit the target more times than you all these years, and yet you've scored. And I says, Well, it's about accuracy, Frank. And he, it was fantastic just to, to do that. And then um, I'm trying, that was that was the second goal. But over there, we were really under the collar. Uh, because, like I said, they were a great side, had some great players, internationals, and um, Joe was, of course, I've told the story many, many times, I'll tell it again if you wish, uh, Joe were in before the game over there, right, and it was red hot, it was really a, a bammy night, um, red hot, and we're not used to playing, because it was, in, in, as Paul says, well into May, wasn't it, the 20th? 
Yeah, the second leg would be in June, I think. Uh, yeah, that's right. It was in June. So cricket, cricket we, weather, we really. Should been, we should have been on holiday, but we're going to play yeah. football. So, <laughs> and we're seeing a lot, remember. And, of course, all the Geordie nation expects us, because we were good defensively, didn't lose many goals. They expect us to win the cup. However, after about 30 minutes, um, things were a bit iffy, to say the least. And I, I remember it was going to be a difficult night, because when we decide who's over there, unlike today, you toss a coin before the game starts. The referee comes in and the referee, the two captains, toss a coin to see who's going to go on the pitch and warm up first. That's That was the, the protocol. One team went out, warmed up, their team came in and the other team went out. So I won a toss and I thought, well, we'll go out first. And I remember going out on the pitch and running about, as you normally do, a little sprint here, pinging the ball there and all this. And the, the sweat was pouring down us. Kids, you know, it was like so humid. After about five minutes or less than that, I said to the lads, never mind getting warmed up, I'm sweating. Let's get back in and, you know, keep our energy for the, for the game. And I walked in with a team and Joe Harvey was in the dressing room, there in the dressing room with his fag lit in the dressing room. But that's, that's the way it was in them days. <laughs> and uh, he said, what are you doing? I says, and he was, he was obviously being... What are you doing bringing the, the lads back in? I said, Gaffer, it's too hot out there. I've taken the decision. No point in running around there because we're warm enough anyway. I brought the lads in. So on that note, he went, oh, right. And he walked out the doors and he went out in the pitch. He came back two minutes later and he's classic leg. I can see him now. He came back and he went, bah. I can't tell you exactly what he said, but I can tell you because I don't want to swear. But it was worse to the effect goodness gracious, we've got a bit of a job on here tonight. And he says, good luck. And he walked out. Then that was his team top before the game. So we went out and sure enough, he was right. We got hammered. And, and it was only a good saves by Willie. Bit of luck hit the post. They actually hammered us. And anyway, we came at halftime, 2-0 down and devastated. You know, because we were a good defence. We were a good defensive team. A big one up the front as well with Pop. And that was always a get out. And anyway, I came in into the dressing room at halftime, and I mean, the sweat was pouring off me. And I remember sitting next to Frank, vice captain at the time, and my head, my head was down. Joe wasn't in the dressing room. My head was down, and there was pools of sweat forming between my feet. That's how hot it was, just dripping off me. And we're sitting there. You can imagine the dressing room is silent. What we're going to do now? There's no sign of Joe. So we're all looking at each other, thinking. And I remember saying to Frank, Ever need? Uh, did we ever need the boss? Now is the time. And at that, he walked in through the doors, and they were like, I always remember, like swing doors. You two, two old remember, man, John Wayne. You know, he used to go in, yeah. to go in the saloon. There used to be yeah. these swing doors, didn't it? Where there was similar door, and he barred through this door, cigarette in hand, looks around the dressing room. We're all like heads down, fighting to look up, and he says, "What's the problem?" And we, I kept my head down. <laughs> What's the problem? And and he said it once, twice, three times. And eventually I stuck my head up. I said, Well, I don't know if you have noticed, boss, but we're getting absolutely hammered. They're doing, you know, they're, they're destroying us there, destroying us there. We can't get any control of the game. I says, That's a problem. And all the lads were sort of got started. And then, he, then Joe says, There is no problem. At that stage, I went, What? I can't remember what it was, but it was someone like, are you kidding? No problem. We can't get a kick of the ball. And then Joe says, there's no problem. And so we waited for, how do you mean? And his famous quote was, all you've got to do in the second half 
is to go out there and score a goal. And at that, I couldn't resist myself. Score a goal. We've never been over the halfway line. Are you nuts? Or well, what's that effect? And he just said, that's all you've got to do. He did use a few swear words, I've got to say. All you've got to do is go out there and score a goal, and these foreigners will collapse like a pack of cats. Or oh, what's that effect? And he walked out. That was it. Off he went, left us, and we then started in Dave Smith, and we're talking, crack, we're trying to get organised. And uh, but he'd gone. He just left us. So out we go. Of course, a minute in the second half, I think it was. Ball comes in from Jackie Sinker. Wind heads it, but it went back to Jackie, knocks it back into me, and I was on the edge of the box. And I, Jackie put a cross in. It was a little bit behind me, but I just swung and I volleyed it from uh, just over the side, and it shot in the back of the net. Uh, real, I got it, you know, it was like hitting a, a perfect drive on a golf course. It just zoomed into the net. And uh, there's somebody on the line tried to stop it, but it just knocked him down. His hands, bang. And then from then on, of course, they fell apart. And then Alan Foggen or uh, Benny Antoff both scored goals as well. And we actually beat them on the night 3-2. And the classic, going on to that, fantastic, do the celebration, get the cup. And we're going to the dressing room after it. Every some of the directors were there, the press boys, I think, were there as well, because that's what used to happen in these. We're all just one team, and but no Joe Harvey. And eventually, we're drinking champion. All of a sudden, the door bursts open again, and Joe walks in, cigarette. Goes, what did I tell you? I can't see what he said before that, but he said, What, what did he well tell you? And he just laughed. And that was now to me, that was a brilliant bit of management. Was he serious at the time, or is he just lucky? We'll never know the answer, but uh, it was that was Joe Harvey at his best. It's amazing from Joe Harvey that he's just simplified it, hasn't he? Um, and well, calmed he, you all down. To be fair, to be fair, Matt, he's looking at it, we're two 0 down, getting stuffed. Uh, what's he going to say? He's not, he's not going to come up with any tactical genius. But you, well, if you stop him doing that, you stop that. It, it was all about team spirit and effort. And of course, and when we went over, um, not that after the fifty years celebration. We went over to see the, the team we beat, and it was great. They, they looked after us very, very well. And uh, we went over there, and then uh, we found out that when we when, well, when we scored that goal, the first goal in the second half, they all said that destroyed them. They're just like a knife in the stomach, and it just killed them off. Because um, and then of course I, I think Benny got another one very quickly, and Foggin scored a great goal, which I think to this day, if George Best had done it, would have been goal of the year. But you never win. A lot of credit for that but it was just a great night and then after that can you believe um we obviously won a couple do a lap of honor a uh, lap of honor around it and there was about i think it was i read somewhere 200 north newcastle supporters there because it was very difficult to get to hungary in them days you have to have visas and all sorts of things and uh anyway we went around and I remember running around and uh, with a cup in my hand and somebody else got to and somebody jumped on me back and I went, you know, running around the track. I went, get off! It was my wife Camille. She came. She had come on the pitch. Come on the pitch. I knew it. So that was a great night, and we um, obviously celebrated long into the night. Many, many stories I could tell you about some of the old press boys: Bob Cass, John Gibson. Absolutely fantastic. We had a, you know, there's a guy called Bob Cass who used to work for your company. Bob was a great character, and we went back, and uh, Lord Westwood. Scotsman, bit tight, I've got to say. Uh, but he said to me, he says, right, Bob, I want you to take um, all the boys into such and such a room. And he says, I want you to give them a good time and uh, organize some champagne. He says, 
but not the French champagne. Make sure it's the local stuff. <laughs> and, and the press boys were part of the team as well. You, there's some great pictures. A great picture of all the press boys and Joe Harvey and uh, myself. Uh, I might have been on the picture on the on the the River Danube. They were all there because they were all part of the, they they from the day one they were part of the of the group and we went back and we had a sing song in the hotel and then the night just went on next morning have to catch the plane early a lot of sore heads i can tell you So there we are, listener. Part one of our special two-part episode with Bob Monker is done. The 18th instalment of Chronicled, the history of Newcastle United. It was a real treat to listen to the captain of the 1969 Fairs Cup-winning side reflect on this era and that famous campaign. And we have even more from Bob for you next week when he discusses the homecoming, including an incredible anecdote from the open-top bus journey back to St James's Park. Bob also talks about Pop Robson, Malcolm McDonald, and we'll have Paul Joanne with us to bring us up to date with the domestic fortunes of the club right through to 1971. Thanks everyone for listening. If you have any NUFC history stories, observations, facts, stats, memorabilia, you name it, you know where we are, the EIBW podcast at reachplc.com or you can tweet me at Ketchell on Twitter. Please subscribe to the Everything is Black and White podcast via whichever podcast platform you're listening to. Follow Chronicle Live's Newcastle United Instagram channel at Chronicle NUFC and we're also on Twitter and Facebook at Chronicle NUFC. If you're enjoying what we're doing with our history series, a nice five-star review on iTunes would be fantastic if you have the time. And lastly, stay up to date with everything black and white by subscribing to our daily Newcastle United newsletters. These are free, and a link to sign up to these is in the show notes. So hit that, scroll down to Sport, Newcastle United Updates, tick the box, and you'll be signed up. Thanks so much for listening to Chronicle, the history of Newcastle United, with me, Matt Ketchell, Paul Joanneu, and our very special guest, Bob Bunker.